Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for a brand new episode of Collider Ladies Night. I am beyond thrilled to have Julia Stiles on the show today in celebration of Riviera. Hello, and how is everything going? Hi, good. I mean, good. It's just, you'd think after like a year of doing Zoom interviews, I'd figure it out. But there's a reason we hire technicians and uh, hair and makeup people and all that. So. so I'm showing off a pretty new ladies night game for you right now. We call it dicey questions. Basically, I have too many questions and we don't have enough time. So I came up with eight questions. And I'm going to roll the die three times. And that's how we're going to decide what three questions we start with at least. So great. Here we go. I got a seven. Seven, we're calling that's a wrap. What is the strangest rap gift you've ever received? Oh God, a riding crop, like that thing that you whip a horse with. This is a long time ago and it was very inappropriate. Um, or maybe it was a joke, I don't know. It was a play that I did um, called Oleana and Aaron Eckhart and I uh, were the only two characters in it. So you can guess who gave me that. Okay, <laughs> all right, we're going again. I got a one. One this time is, ooh, remakes. All right, so revivals, remakes, and reboots are kind of inevitable these days. So of all of your former projects, which do you think would be best served by a revival or a sequel with the original cast? And then what do you think would be best served by a complete overhaul with a new cast and a new generation of stars in it? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I have... Um not FOMO, but like that, uh, I kind of want to do over on a lot of the things that I've done, like probably uh, everything before I was 30. So what, what would I, so let me take advantage of this question. Um, what would I like to do? Well, I definitely want to do over on Save the Last Dance. I would love to, um, because I, I am very critical of myself and I, and as dancers can be, I feel like I never got it quite right. So I would do that again with the original cast. And then I forgot the second half of the question. <laughs> which which uh, movie that you were in do you think would be better served by a complete overhaul, like a new generation stepping in to create a new version of that particular story? 
Oh, okay. Without insulting the original movie. Um, There's value in in modernizing things, I think, and repeating stories for that point. Right, right, right. I I also would see Save the Last Dance modernized uh, because we're still dealing with a lot of the issues that came up in it. All right, one more. We got a three. Number three is Filmmaking 101, what is a seemingly silly question about the way that films and shows are made that you were afraid to ask when you were first starting out? Oh, um, I mean, the only thing that comes to mind is it was actually a theater thing. It was um, one of the very first plays I ever did. They said, okay, everybody take five. And I was like, what does take five mean? It means take a five minute break, but I didn't know that at the time. That's very fair. All right, I'm gonna start with, uh, with Ghostwriter here, because I know you've said that you're a bit embarrassed by the clip that's floating around out there, but was there anything about working on that particular set with that group of people that looking back makes you go, you know, I'm glad that that was my first on-screen gig? Well, of course I'm glad. I mean, you know, when you're starting out as an actor, you just want to get work, right? You just want to be hired. So I was like, I was obviously thrilled to get the job, and I had a lot of fun with the costumes and that's one of the reasons I became an actress was so I could play dress up and 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 play pretend. Um, so it's not even that I'm embarrassed. It's just like if you saw, you know, it's just like uh, if you saw if you if you had a like a home video of yourself at 12 years old or whatever I was, I mean, it was 14. I don't know. Um, and it was sort of broadcast all over the internet. You'd be like, okay, uh, let's just move on. When you're first starting out and you want to get as much experience as possible. What is it like balancing that mentality, but also the fact that even when you're just starting out, you kind of want to curate your filmography that really speaks to the projects and the roles that, you know, I guess speak to the type of career path you want to carve for yourself. I about curating a, a career for myself. I wasn't thinking that strategically. I was just like, A, please hire me. And then, and then as I started to you know, work more, then it was more like, oh, I'd like to travel there, or this seems like a fun uh, thing to go to, you know, go to work every day and wake up in the morning and uh, work with these people or play this character. So it was a lot more um, whimsical, I guess, than than later in my career. Now, I, I think a bit more, I'm a bit more thoughtful about making choices in terms of what I want to put out there um, and what I want to work, work on, but not when I was... 18, 19, 20, all the way up, probably yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get into how that evolved a bit more. But first, 10 things I hate about you. You know, it had to come up, but it's seriously one of my all-time favorites. So I know that you've said that the role of Kat popped for you because she was different from a lot of the other teen comedy leads we had been seeing at the time. So it was making me wonder, because I know there can be a lot of crossover in the audition scene, were you ever being offered auditions for some of those other projects that were in that similar sphere? And do you think maybe you got the role of Cat because that clicked for you on that level? A hundred percent. I, uh, I, in my early auditioning years, especially because I was um, kind of an angsty teenager, or I don't know, um, or maybe ser- more serious or thoughtful, when I would audition for commercials, I remember in particular, uh, they would always tell me, oh, you're so serious, you're too, you know, intellectual, like, be more bubbly, be more effervescent, and of course, it's like asking a woman to smile, you're like, um, <laughs> the, uh, the, then I read Cat, 
And it, it just completely jumped off the page to me. I thought, wow, this is so refreshing. This girl is feisty and opinionated and unapologetic. And if I wasn't that, I wanted to be that. And so it was so exciting for me to get the role and then also have other people respond to her the same way that I did. Going into O here, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think O might have been one of the first times that you worked with a, a director who was also a prolific actor. So actually maybe minus, I guess, M. Night Shyamalan's cameos in his own movies, but could you feel a difference on that set working with Tim Blake Nelson and any you know unique quality to his uh, directing style that reflected his acting sensibilities? Yeah, definitely. He was very, uh, very much paying attention to the actors, you know, and that doesn't always happen with movies. Sometimes they're much more concerned with the image or they sort of a director who doesn't come from an acting background can um, not really understand like what, it, you know, you can't just tell somebody to start crying. There's a whole internal process that has to happen or whatever it is. But I, I think Tim Nelson, uh, because of his acting background, was so respectful of us. Um, and sensitive to what we needed, but also um, didn't 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 use kid gloves. Like he he treated us like grownups, even though we were kind of not yet grownups. Um, and uh, and I think he also the movie as a whole, because of his background with Shakespeare, he really wanted to, even though we weren't speaking in verse, like he really wanted to respect that it was an adaptation of Othello. So it gave it kind of a more maturity, I guess. I guess a, a similar question, but in more of a, of a general way, was there any specific cast member or filmmaker that you worked with in the early days of your career that inspired you in a way that made you think, you know, it's, it's not just about the fact that I want to do this, but that right there, that's how I want to do it. I mean, I definitely Paul Greengrass comes to mind. He just is such an inspirational director in that he, um, He's so respectful of the cast and the crew, no matter what, where you fall in the hierarchy, um, but he has such a clear vision and then also comes to set with a smile on his face and telling jokes. And it was just, he set such a nice tone and atmosphere, even you know when there's millions of dollars at stake and there's obviously a lot of pressure on him. Um, so yeah, I would say he's definitely an inspiration. Solid choice right there. Going back to the, the Shakespeare of it all in the earlier days of your career. I mean, we all know how the industry likes to box folks in to what they do and what they do well. So was there ever anyone on your team saying, you know, I know you want to do this, but like, be careful. You don't want to be the one who does all the Shakespeare adaptations. Um, I feel like it was the opposite. I feel like I was the one who was saying, I don't want to do all the, I like, I love, I'm so grateful for all my opportunities, but I don't want to just be playing one thing. I wanted I wanted versatility in, in the types of movies that I was in and then also the types of characters that I was playing. Um, I don't know how much control actors really have over their own careers. So I don't know, you be the judge. <laughs> well, for, for what it's worth within the little Shakespeare box, I feel like you have a nice amount of variety with those three adaptations. But given what you just said, is there is there any specific point where you started to feel like more control was in your hands? And I mean, even, even if you feel like you have that at this point. I think maybe, yeah, only recently. I mean, only, um, uh, only in the last five years, I wanna say, maybe five or 10 years, because, because it, and it wasn't, nothing really had changed in terms of what I was being offered 
or anything in the industry. It's more just my, uh, my becoming more thoughtful about choices that I was making and, um, you know, really pushing for uh, certain roles that I wanted, like the role in Hustlers. I really uh, loved that script and I, and I, I, the 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 part really spoke to me and the the subject matter really spoke to me and I knew that Lorene Scafaria was going to do an amazing job with it and so I really like advocated to be in it um which you know years before that I probably would have been more passive I guess I I understand that I'm glad you uh you fought for that one I love that movie going into making the decision to go to college. When you made the decision to, I guess, kind of step away from the industry a little bit and focus on getting your degree, was it just a matter of, you know, you always knew you wanted to go to college and that was the age when it happened? Was it about anything that happened in your career that made you think that this is an important part of my life that I know I need to have? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I remember thinking, um, uh, I want to go to college because I want to have, or I want to at least start because uh, I want to have whatever the normal college experience is or the experience that my peers would be having. And then I do also remember thinking, so bizarre, when I, I was thinking when I turn 40, I don't want to be talking, to, I don't want to be a grown, whatever we think of that being, you know, at 20, um, I thought I don't want to be sitting around like talking to producers or studio executives or writers and directors, grownups, my, my, what I thought was grownups and, and not be able to like hold my own, you know, and then we can get into the whole thing of like what, yeah, I just remember thinking, I want to, I, I want to have that behind me. I, I don't know. <laughs> now at this point, do you feel like having that behind you is, is making a big difference? No, I, no, I mean, the, the, you know, having a college degree, like, sure. I'm grateful that I could afford to do that. I'm grateful that I did do it. Um, but I don't, I, I don't know that it necessarily translates to um, filmmaking. Uh, it's, it's just, it's one piece of a bigger puzzle. Like a, a lot of my experience on set in the time that I've been working has informed, you know, has, has educated me and informed who I am now just as much, but. You did get an English degree. So with that in mind, did, that experience of pursuing that degree maybe influence how you uh, how you read scripts or the specific roles that you gravitate towards? I definitely think, yes. I, th I definitely think that like when I first finished school, I thought, well, you know, there's a joke like an English major is a, is a, is a jack of all trades, but a master of none. Or what does an English degree really do uh, unless you're going to be a writer or a teacher or whatever. Um, but I actually think that I, I, I've only recently learned that like, oh, I learned a lot about storytelling. I learned a lot about how, you know, classical storytelling, like a three act structure, but then also just, yeah, how to um, ca character and conflict and uh, drama, comedy, how to tell a story, whatever medium it is, whether it's, you know, uh, a film, a TV show on stage. So it was incredibly useful. Um, I just didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> I also love talking about bumps in the road and how you might have overcome them. And I was reading another interview you did where you mentioned feeling out of place in Hollywood. So having gone through that experience, what would you say to someone else out there who might run into a similar challenge, especially when it comes into, I guess, I don't know, transitioning to the next phase of a career? Well, I think now, you know, I realize more and more Hollywood, whatever, is not 
one thing and it's not a fixed thing you know it's made up of people and it's made of it's made up of business people and creative people and that's a fluid thing that's a changing so like when i first started out acting the industry was really really different than it is now um so you could feel out of place in it but you can also affect it and change it in an ideal world i definitely like that outlook on it now at that time when you were going through it, did you have any peers that you could talk to about it and kind of bat around ideas with in terms of what you could be doing to change the situation then? Not really. I was pretty, I was pretty, I've only, I don't wanna say I was antisocial, but I was maybe introverted or a bit shy early in my career. So I wasn't, uh, most of my friends were not in the industry. And then now I think that's changed a little bit. Like I when I'm on a film set, I'm a lot more social and collaborative. Um, but yeah, when I was first starting out, no, I kind of ran in the other direction. I went, I went off to school and buried my face in some books, you know? It's more fun now, I have to say. <laughs> I understand that. Going into yet another thing that I read that you've said in the past, it was about interviews and something about not being quoted before you're 20 something. So it did make me wonder what I'm kind of asking you to do my job for me, but for, you know, 20 something actors, up and coming actors out there, what question do you wish was asked of them more that you would have appreciated at that age? I think back then there were a lot more, and this has changed. I think there were a lot more questions about like, what is your diet and exercise routine? And what are you wearing? And what are you like, like what uh, designers are you wearing? Or um, uh, yeah, it was a lot, I guess, more superficial and, and obviously that's changed, I think. Um, so what would I wish that they would have asked more? I guess I would have wished, you know, God, I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's more, I actually think I was really lucky that even though I do feel like I shouldn't have been quoted in print, still trying to figure out how to navigate um, becoming famous, I feel like or, uh, you know, even just growing up, I, I feel like it's harder now for um, up and coming actors because the, of the nature of the internet and social media and the way that you say one thing and it's there forever, you know? Absolutely, know that all too well. Let's go into another title here. How about, how about revisiting uh, Saturday Night Live? I, I mean, looking back, what was the most surprising thing about the process of hosting an episode of the show? Uh, how I want to do over on it all or not a you know but but I but I I mean well, how fun it was so fun uh I'm obsessed with that show I love that show I look forward to it still every weekend um and I was just along for the ride I mean you know it's such a well-oiled machine you're you you're literally just being like dragged in between sketches dragged across the set somebody pops a wig on you changes your clothes and then you're off to read the next cue cards but um it was so great and I'd love to do it again. If, if there's an opportunity to do it again, is there anything from the previous time, you know, an item on the to-do list that you didn't get to tick that you would want to do on uh, the next go around? Oh, uh, I don't know. I, anything, anything. I'm up for anything. I feel like that's what you're supposed to be thinking when you approach a show like that. 
Yeah, exactly. All right, let's get into some Born now. I know that Nikki was originally meant to die in the Born identity. So can you walk us through what the process was like in terms of finding out that she wasn't going to anymore? Because if I'm if I know my information properly on this, you you shot the film as though she was going to die and then found out in post that that was not the case anymore, right? Yeah, it was a complete surprise to me. Um, I filmed a scene where uh, I think it was Matt Damon or maybe it was Chris Cooper, like, no, it was Matt. Um, Jason Bourne flips Nikki upside down against a wall and I break my neck. And, uh, and so as far as I knew, that was it for Nikki Parsons. And then I don't remember if it was in post-production or if it was like at the, when the movie came out. Uh, no, it was, I went, I went to go do ADR and record sound and I had, they needed to have um, sounds of me breathing so that we knew that she was still alive. Oh my, um, so many more questions. First, at that time, what, what was your feeling on, on film franchises? And I guess, did they even know that Bourne would spawn a franchise at that point anyway? Well, there's no guarantee. I mean, they didn't, I think they were hoping that it would, but there's no guarantee. And at the time, um, Matt Damon was a very respected actor and well-known, but he wasn't necessarily by the studio system considered an action star. And um, it was for its time, like visually very groundbreaking, you know, with the handheld cameras and the, um, it, it didn't look like your typical action movie. Um, so I remember there was, there was, there was no guarantee that there was gonna be, you know, four movies or, after that. So at what point do they, you know, scramble to whip up a multi-film contract so they can keep you involved? It was, I think it was always, oh, uh, I think each film they, we would, we would have terms of if they do make a sequel, but it's always up to the studio to decide. All right, Dexter time. What would you say is the biggest surprise about stepping into such a well-oiled machine? Or more specifically, do you find it more or less challenging to create a character in a pre-established world and with a cast and crew that have a pre-established workflow? It was great. It was my first introduction to really like a, a, a cable drama. Um, and I remember back then, which cable had cable had just started to become great and really appealing to actors. Um, and I and I had always had this fear of if you sign up for a TV show, which would be like a six year contract, are you gonna is it gonna end up being something that you didn't anticipate or something that wasn't really what you signed up for? And Dexter totally changed my mind about that. So that then I could go on and do Riviera um, and feel really confident that like working on a thirteen episode drama is a really fun job um, and can be really rewarding for actors. Um, and it's so, in some ways, like the pressure was off because I wasn't the lead on Dexter. You know, I wasn't a series regular, but but to, to come in and have, I loved what they wrote for me and to come in and be able to um, play that part for one season was really great. And it made me want to do more TV. Speaking of that, television has evolved quite a bit over the last 10 years. So. How much would you say the experience of making a TV show changed between Dexter and Riviera? I guess, how, how do you think it's changed for the better? And then also alternatively, did you have any experiences on Dexter that you wish were still more common today? Well, I remember when I first, this was a little before Dexter, but when I was, when I was first started acting, 
there was a big divide between film actors and TV actors. Film actors had this idea of like, mm, I don't wanna do TV because then I'm gonna be only on TV. Um, and, and I think TV actors really aspired to be in film. Um, and that's totally changed. And then, you know, certainly I was paying attention to that sort of thing between Dexter and Riviera. And now it's like a job on a cable television show is one of the most coveted, you know, uh, gigs. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the Emmy also, because I, I'm just always curious about the, the reality of getting nominated for a big award like that. Does it really change the game career-wise in any capacity? Are you all of a sudden being offered more television opportunities like that? I don't know. I don't think so. And here's the humble pie that I got to eat. We were nominated, I was nominated for Golden Globe, which was like a huge dream come true for me. But at the Golden Globes, when they show the nominees and they announce like so-and-so, a best uh, you know guest in a TV show, uh, uh, and they say the names and the person that they're playing and the show that they're on. When they cut to me, they cut to the wrong person in the audience. So I wasn't, it was like one of our producers, you know, it's that sort of thing. So it's like, it's, it's all the highs and lows of this business. Yeah. You can never, you know, I went to another award ceremony and um, was it was like, uh, it was the BAFTAs and I, and so you had the British thing on top of it. And I was like, oh my, you know, starstruck and feeling really great about myself. And then they spelled my name wrong on the place card. So it's like, you can't take yourself too seriously or just don't, don't get too excited. <laughs> don't get too appreciated, but don't get too excited. All right. Going into Riviera, going back to the beginning, because we're introducing our audience to the show right now. What was it about the project that made you say, this is a, a project or a role that I need to take because I've never done this specific thing yet and I really want to do it. Um, yes, I feel like I'm often, or at least I like advice I would give other people is that if something scares you or you or feels like unknown territory, that's probably a good reason to do it. I'm trying to think of what, um, I did a movie called It's a Disaster with, uh, that was a comedy with David Cross and America Ferreira and it was um, a great script, but it was also largely improvisational and it was all comedians. And I had never really done anything like that before. And I was a little worried that if I was gonna be able to keep up, um, but it was like one of the best, most fun things I've ever worked on. So then jumping into Riviera, what was the thing that made you go, you know, this is new to me and this scares me, but that also excites me. Well, it was, it was, it was exciting because of the setting and where I'd get to travel and being the lead on a TV show. But it was also scary for those reasons because it means you pack up your life and you go move to another country for seven months. Um, uh, although I would do that again in a heartbeat. Um, and it's also, you don't know again you're, what you're signing up for three seasons later. So um, I, I'm really proud of the third season and I think it got bigger and more um, more exciting and more intriguing. Um, so it was incredibly rewarding. But when I signed on for season one, I had only read the pilot. The, the first episode and got like a, you know, a, 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 a synopsis of what was gonna happen later in season one. I want to highlight, I mean, every single person in this ensemble, but we don't have time for that. So in an effort to at least highlight two individuals of everyone in the Riviera cast, whose process would you say aligns with yours the most where you instantly fell into step with them? And then who challenged you to adapt to what they like to do? And, and maybe that was for the better and made you try something new. I loved working with Lena Olin. And I just, I felt like I loved our mornings next to each other in the hair and makeup chairs. And then watching her work because 
I just learned so much from her. Um, and then also, um, yeah, I remember falling out of like, sometimes we would be doing a scene together and I would fall out of it because uh, I was just so riveted by her performance that I got distracted. And then Rupert Graves, Rupert Graves who plays um, Georgina's right-hand man in, uh, in, in season three. Um, I just love that he's like, he can, it's a, it's a particularly British thing, I think, in terms of like the training that they have. He could turn it on and off. You know, cameras are rolling. He's incredibly focused. He's in the scene. They call cut and he's talking about football and making jokes. And just like so committed and so invested and gives it his all, but also doesn't take it too seriously and isn't too precious about the work that he's doing. So do you prefer doing the opposite when you have the opportunity, just like staying locked in and in that environment and in that character? No, no, I like to break out of it. I like to break out of it. I feel like um, there's a there's a freshness that happens when you're not, it's like you need to give your mentally a break from whatever you're doing. And I also learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, I made a couple of short films and stepping inside an editing room really taught me that like, it's better to be free and play around uh, and give options as an actor as opposed to just being like locked into I want my performance to be this because there's so, so much that can be done in editing if if a director has options. Bringing up your work behind the camera what about when it comes to actual production is there any role in a in a film company that you gained a greater appreciation for when you actually made your own shorts? Well, it's a group effort. I mean, every every everyone is kind of essential. You can't make a movie by yourself. I mean, you, yeah, you could, but I don't know how good it would be. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, everyone is essential. Maybe an unsung hero of a film crew, someone who just uh, yeah. doesn't really get the credit that they deserve. Uh, script supervisor really has to hold it together. But I would say, I would say, it, no, this is a job that can be done not well uh, often, but the assistant directors who are the ones who keep the schedule going and keep and go to the cast and like say it's time to go on set they they that is such a huge important part because it sets the tone and if you have somebody yelling or you have someone who just even is on edge and they're the first person to talk to the actor in the morning you're going to then it's um, unless it's like a superhero actor they're going to affect they they can make it that much you know I don't want to be too precious about actors, but we do at a certain point, we're waiting around, waiting around. And then every, there is this subtle underlying pressure that we all feel of like, you better be able to perform as soon as we roll that camera, because otherwise, you know, it'll all fall apart. And so the assistant director is, is like, you know, they, they just affect your mood. And um, uh, I would also say hair and makeup people too. <laughs> yeah, that's my quick answer, hair and makeup. So with Riviera, I would say there's a lot of, I guess, eccentric and over the top components to it. So what would you say is maybe the most holy shit quality of the lifestyle on the Riviera? And then also of the art industry that you learned about while you were prepping for the show? I mean, every day was a holy shit moment on that set because you'd be in like, and it just got more and more holy shit because, you know, I was, I've never... I've experienced a little bit of that kind of luxury through Hollywood, through the work that, or my career, but I don't come from it. And I, and so I, you know, I think of season one, it was like, we get to ride in a helicopter. Awesome. And then season two, it would be like, we get to, uh, we get to go on a yacht or like a luxury yacht. Like somebody actually owns this boat 
and goes sailing around the world with it? How does that happen? And then it was like, you know, private jet. And, oh, I get to ride in a Ferrari. That's, I never thought I was going to do that in my life. You know, it's all ridiculous. It's all ridiculous. But um, it was fun to dip my toe in. How do you think that your run on this show is going to wind up influencing the the roles and projects you commit to moving forward and maybe the capacity that you want to commit to those projects? Because I also know that you're uh, producing here, too. I was an executive producer on season three. Um, just it seemed like the natural thing to do just because I was really involved in um, collaborating with the writers in terms of our storytelling. Um, it's it sometimes sometimes it's. How do I answer that question? I don't know. Um, we won't hold you to it. That answer can change and evolve. That's kind of the point. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just thinking like other things that I've worked on since Riviera, sometimes I don't have to look picture perfect, but then sometimes I'm like, wait a minute. No, I need some mascara, stop. Um, so I don't know, it changes on a day-to-day -day basis. Like what, uh, how, how, how much I miss from Riviera and how much I'm excited for, you know, trying other things. Projects like the new Orphan movie, which I'm ridiculously excited about. Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. It was fun to work on. And I um, I do not watch horror movies. And when I was sent the script for it, I was like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not into that genre. But then, and I was also really worried about going back to work after COVID. And the script was so dang good. I couldn't put it down. And I was so surprised by the twist that I'm not going to give away that um, I think you'll like it. Avoiding any spoilers or twists, because you're someone who doesn't necessarily gravitate towards watching horror movies, what, what is a quality about this new orphan movie that, you know, I guess scratch that itch for you that other ones don't? It's incredibly psychological. You know, I'm not really interested in blood and gore. And I don't find that, I find it gross. But I don't find it really scary. What I find scary is, is the stuff that happens up here. And the, the um, Isabel Furman's character, uh, Esther, although she has multiple names, Lena, I don't know, um, is it's just such a fascinating, uh, especially now because she's a grown up, she's 23 now playing the same part. It's like, it's just such a fascinating um, sociopathic character. I mean, along the lines of why Norman Bates was so interesting to watch. That comparison makes me even more excited and I didn't think that was possible. I have to let you go soon. We are gonna wind this down with a top three. So as someone who stars in one of the most iconic teen romantic comedies of the 90s, a personal favorite of mine, can you list your own personal top three and it not include 10 things maybe? Oh, of a romantic comedies? Roman teen romantic comedies from the 90s. Okay, well, can I do one drama too? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So top romantic drama, uh, huge, influential Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Danes. Oh, I love that movie. And it just broke all boundaries um, or whatever the expression is. Uh, and then comedies, okay. Uh, 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 uh. From the nineties. See, I'm such a child of the eighties, but I guess, okay. Um, you think I'd be prepared for a question like this? <laughs> give me a sec, give me a sec. I mean, I, I'm thinking Drew Barrymore. I feel like there were a ton of romantic comedies that I love Drew Barrymore in. Never been kissed. Never been kissed. And then also this maybe was later than the 90s, but the, the baseball one that she did with um, Jimmy Fallon, uh, Fever Pitch. Yes, Fever Pitch is a good one. That's a good one. What if, here, wait, I'll, I'll rattle off some titles for you. What about, uh, I don't know, Clueless, She's All That, Can't Find Oh, yes. Well, 
Clueless was huge. Clueless was so fun. That was huge. That was a good one. Okay, that might that might bump that might knock one of the other ones out. Good solid list there. Yeah. All right. We always end ladies' night with the same two questions. First one is who is someone that you think is changing the industry for the better? Emerald Fennell, I think is how you pronounce her name. I I promising young woman was just like the mind blown emoji, the the puffy cloud over the head. Uh, just describes, I, I couldn't stop telling all my friends about it. And I'm so glad it got the attention that it deserved in terms of Oscars. Um, Emerald Fennell, and then also um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, obviously. Like they're, you know, they're, they're changing content out there and they're doing it from behind the camera too. Excellent choices right there. Our last question is a little bit of a heavy one. You could take it in a lighter direction if you prefer. What is the biggest fear that you've ever had that you've actually managed to overcome? Oh, um, have I? Oh, um, I mean, I want to say that I, no, because that's a, like a challenge. I was going to say it like I have a huge fear of rats and pigeons, but I don't want to even open up that challenge. So I've not overcome that fear. I would say I'm working on my fear of heights. I feel like I've been in a lot of situations at work where they're like, do you have a fear of heights? Um, as we're about to go do some stunt off of a, you know, a mountainside or whatever. Um, and so I'm sort of getting better at that. I gotta let you go. And before I do, I'm gonna tell everybody out there that season two of Riviera, it's gonna kick off on Ovation TV on Saturday, May 8th. And then episodes are gonna be available on the Ovation Now app the next day. So do check it out. It is a binge-worthy show, so just be warned, once you press play, it's not going to stop. So carve out a lot of time. Julia, thank you so much for hanging out with us, and big congrats on the show. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to talk to you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.